You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangelos, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a Certified Medical Director in Long-Term Care. Which infectious diseases are most common at long-term care facilities? If there is an infectious disease outbreak at a facility, how can we best protect residents? Joining us to discuss immunizations in long-term care is Dr. William Schaffner, President of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases. He is also Professor and Chairman of the Department of Preventive Medicine and Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Schaffner, welcome to our program. Well, good to be with you. Tell us about infectious diseases in long-term care. Which are the most common? Which are the most threatening? And what do we need to protect against? Well, since we're coming into the uh, winter season, let's start with two that are very, very important right at the top of the list. One is influenza. And then the other is that most common cause of pneumonia, pneumococcal disease. So we might start with flu. Is that good with you? Go right ahead. So influenza, of course, is an annual scourge, right? That virus shows up annually in our communities and can cause outbreaks, sometimes modest size, sometimes large ones. And, of course, these outbreaks can penetrate long-term care facilities. And so we need to be prepared to try to do whatever we can to prevent influenza. The hallmark, the cornerstone of influenza prevention in the entire population, but particularly in long-term care facilities, is, of course, vaccination. We have to vaccinate annually because the flu virus, devilish thing that it is, changes on an annual basis. So we have to create a new vaccine on an annual basis, so we need to get ourselves vaccinated yearly. And there's a two-pronged method to prevent influenza outbreaks in long-term care facilities. One, of course, is to immunize all the residents. That's terribly important. Can't do it without it. But we recognize that the long-term care residents are generally older, more frail, And so their immune systems aren't as robust and therefore not as responsive, not ideally responsive to the influenza vaccine. So the second prong is to vaccinate absolutely everyone who works in that long-term care facility. And you might be surprised to learn that by vaccinating the caregivers, everybody who works in the facilities is as important, if not more important, than actually vaccinating the patients. So all of us who have any kind of responsibility in long-term care facilities should get ourselves vaccinated. Well, listen, I'm going to take you to the frontier because, again, we've got a professional audience on the line. I guess most of the medical directors here have success rates of about 99% in their residents. I bet you they now have success rates well over 95% in their staff, and I got my vaccination last week. But the trouble I'm experiencing, and I bet you we'd like some help with, is the families that come to visit. What do we do about them? Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's go back. 
I'm ready to believe that all these directors are doing an absolutely splendid job in immunizing all the patients. I'm a little more skeptical about whether we're getting 90% rates in all the caregivers and everyone who works in the facilities, including in dietary and everywhere else, even though they don't have direct patient contact. So if you'll permit me to put that off to the side a little bit, certainly in acute care hospitals, we don't get any kinds of success rates that high. Across the country, somewhere between 40 and 60% of the caregivers, the people who work in acute care hospitals are vaccinated. On occasion, you can get over that. And increasingly, because of those numbers, hospitals are now mandating influenza vaccine among their employees and even the physicians who come in from the community in order to be credentialed. If long-term care is already at 90%, boy, you get Olympic gold for me. I'm sure you've got a better sense of the data. I'm looking at my own facility and some of the medical directors that I deal with because they are responsible for the overall care of the facility. And, of course, at my own facility, we have raffles, we have prizes, we have contests, not for the residents, but for the staff that's there. No, 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 I hear you. And all those things seem to make uh, some contribution. And as I say, if across the country we're achieving success rates like that in long-term care, That is absolutely splendid. Well, at least I know what we need to shoot for. At least your perspective tells us where we need to get to, and we'll re-examine all of that with our staffs as well. You know, there's a fair amount of turnover among personnel in long-term care. So sometimes keeping up with the new folks who are hired during the winter season is uh, more of an effort. and Perhaps some of those folks can uh, slip through the cracks, as it were. You know, when we talk about the turnover, one of the questions that always comes up is, when is the cutoff? Is there a cutoff when you stop giving the flu vaccine? Good question. So influenza vaccine starts to be delivered. This year it was particularly early. started in August already, but it's delivered in September, and most of the immunization campaigns usually occur in October and then have a tendency to wind down once you reach Thanksgiving, for example. And those data are very clear. But we should not stop. We should keep vaccinating because the peak month for influenza in the United States, on average, is February and into March. So you can see that if you continue to vaccinate in December and even into January, even into early February, you can do good. You can provide a wall of protection against the influenza virus. And we have to recognize that influenza vaccine, although a very good vaccine, is not a perfect vaccine. We've just said it's not optimally protective in the people whom we most wish to protect, the residents, right? And every once in a while, that wily influenza virus mutates during the course of a winter season And so the influenza vaccine may not be a perfect right-on-target match. But nonetheless, even in those seasons, there is partial protection. So we do the best we can with what we have. I paraphrase Voltaire, waiting for perfection is the greatest enemy of the current good. The current good is the vaccine we have, and we need to deploy it maximally. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. 
I'm your host, Dr. Eric Tangalos, and joining me to discuss immunizations in long-term care is Dr. William Schaffner, president of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases. He is also professor and chairman of the Department of Preventive Medicine and professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. We've been talking about vaccinations, and I think we've covered pretty much what we want to say about influenza. Let's turn our attention now to pneumococcal vaccine. So pneumococcal vaccine protects against the most common bacterial cause of pneumonia. The two are related, influenza and pneumo, because uh, pneumococcal pneumonia is the most common bacterial complication of influenza. So it's a double-barreled kind of combination. So we have had for years now a pneumococcal vaccine that protects against the 23 most common types of pneumococci. It is an immunization that is given once, once an individual has reached 65 years of age. It's an immunization that is virtually complication-free other than occasionally the little bit of sore arm that you get with the immunization. Rarely does someone have even a degree or even two degrees of fever after the immunization. So it's a wonderfully uh, safe vaccine. And it's recommended for everyone age 65 and older, which I think accounts for the substantial majority of folks who are are indeed resident in long-term care facilities. Now, there's been a number of uh, changes in the vaccine over the years. How do we sort through who might need revaccination? Yeah, that gets a little bit more complicated. Let's start with the notion that the CDC's advisory committee does not recommend revaccination routinely, which surprises a lot of doctors because kind of on their own, I know some of the doctors in my own community in Nashville have been revaccinating every five to 10 years. Is that harmful? No. You can get a little bit more of a sore arm when you do that. Is it helpful? It's not been clearly determined. So that's why the CDC's advisory committee has said you don't have to do that routinely. Now, for people younger than age 65, anybody with underlying heart disease, any kind of lung disease, if they've lost their spleens, for example, if they're smokers or if they're asthmatics, they should be vaccinated with pneumococcal vaccine. The re-immunization recommendation says that if you've been vaccinated, if you're younger than age 65, and then you hit age 65 and five years have elapsed, then go ahead and get re-immunized. It's a little complicated, but once you get used to it, it's not too difficult. But I think you've been very helpful for our listeners. Uh, Again, we're dealing with a long-term care, a more aged population, And if you've been vaccinated once, hooray. Yes. That's what we're looking for. Good. Is there anything else you want to say about pneumococcal vaccine before we move on? Let me just add a little something, because this is, as they say in the movies, previews of coming attractions. As probably many of your listeners know, to go to the other end of the age spectrum, among infants and children, we have been using a different kind of pneumococcal vaccine for about five, six, seven years now, so-called conjugate 
pneumococcal vaccine. That pneumococcal vaccine is now in clinical trials in adults. And the results of those trials will be forthcoming in the next year or two. So we need to stay tuned. There'll probably be some new recommendations. And it might get a little bit more complicated because there'll be kind of subset recommendations for people who have previously received the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine, the one that we currently have available. So who knows what those recommendations will be? We don't, but new information will be coming along. So we all need to, as they say, stay tuned. We've got a few minutes left. And again, something that confronts our medical directors all of the time is when there's an outbreak of flu or something in the community, and they really want to limit access. We kind of lock the doors, try to close the place down as best as possible. Any advice along those lines or any other advice when there might be an outbreak? I can certainly applaud that because clearly the introduction of the influenza virus, for example, which is the classical example, requires human beings to bring it in. If we have the entire staff, the personnel vaccinated, then we just need to be alert to make sure that they don't come to work already ill, because people will do that. We have to kind of stay alert to that. And then, at least in acute care hospitals, we <laughs> sometimes we screen and sometimes we just put up notices asking family and visit other visitors if they have an illness with fever not to visit, to defer their visits. And I know that some institutions or parts of institutions where you have severely immunocompromised patients, for example, will be much more stringent. They'll actually have a nurse literally at the door screening everyone who comes in. We do that routinely in our neonatal intensive care unit. All visitors, including family, are screened. So depending upon the uh, nature of the outbreak and how aggressive you want to be, you can certainly do that. I really would like to thank uh, my guest from Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, Dr. William Schaffner. Dr. Schaffner, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. Eric, it's been a great pleasure. You have been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.